Coming up, we set the dial on the Wayback Machine to 2011 as we share an interview from the vault with comedian and actor Albert Brooks. Then we go long with a comedian who says he once felt like the most hated man on the internet. That's Gilbert Gottfried. The same 12 people play all the roles. And even though you may like an actor, there's no surprise anymore. In America, you drink coffee. In Russia, coffee drinks you. <laughs> what a country. <laughs> Real villains in life are always, they're charming, weird, interesting people. They're not... They're not one-dimensional people at all. It's why they can suck so many people in. The audience starts booing and hissing and gasping. One guy yelled out too soon, which I thought meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup and punchline. Twitter is turning all of us into Bob Hope. People say, you know, if your kids want to go into show business, what are you going to do? And it's like, I, I think like... I could understand if they said, I want to reach into the trash can and take out soda cans and turn them in for five cents each. That at least makes some sense. Show business doesn't. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in. Sidle up to the bar, pour yourself a nice refreshing lemonade, spike it with a little something from behind the bar if you like, and sit back and listen to the conversations. A little bit later on, Gilbert Gottfried stops by. Gilbert Gottfried, of course, everybody knows that voice. Everybody knows this guy as a, someone who just seems to have been around forever. But do you remember when he was the most hated man on the internet? We're going to get to that a little bit later on. First up, though, Albert Einstein. Did you know that Albert Brooks, the actor, filmmaker, comedian, his real name is Albert Einstein? Now, we went to the Wayback Machine, down to the vault. It's dusty down there. We had to root around a little bit. But we found an interview from 2011 when he was co-starring in a movie called Drive. This was a big sort of shift for him. And we talked about this in the interview. This was a big shift for him from comedic roles, from directing, from doing all that stuff into something that was much different. Now, depending on your point of view, you either know him as Martin in Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, uh, or perhaps you know him better, if you go back a little bit, uh, as the star and director of movies like Modern Romance, Lost in America, Defending Your Life. Uh, these are great little gems of comedy. He wanted to do something different, though. He wanted to do something that wasn't comedic, and it turns out that he ends up playing uh, the bad guy, although, man, a movie full of bad guys, how bad could he possibly be, uh, in the movie Drive, starring opposite Ryan Gosling. It is a tremendous performance uh, in a movie that got critical raves, I think was probably one of the high points of Ryan Gosling's career to date. And uh, it was a movie that played at film festivals and, and that sort of thing all over the place. And in fact, it was at a film festival that I spoke with him. And, you know, he was tired. He'd done a bunch of interviews that day. But he gave me a terrific chat, which I'm sharing with you. And I guess having Gilbert Garfield on the show pushed me towards going down to the vault and finding another comedian who has taken a few twists and turns in his career. Anyway, here we go. We're going to have a conversation with Albert Brooks talking about the movie Drive. 
the beauty of this movie was uh, kind of seeing a different side of you in this, and we see it from the very beginning of the very first shot you're in. Right, and you know, as someone who directs movies, if you can do that and pull it off, it just adds to your movie. Because normally, the same 12 people play all the roles, and even though you may like an actor, there's no surprise anymore. When someone, when Edward G. Robinson came on screen, you knew what he was going to do. So the fact that Nicholas thought this was a good idea worked for everybody. I wanted to try something different. It doesn't let the audience know 100% what's going to happen just because they see me. As a matter of fact, they may even think something different. And it, that, it helps. It's always a good thing in movies if you can do that and pull it off. Was it something that you had actively been seeking out? Something no, I didn't know anything about it. I'd been actively seeking out a role of this type. I had said to my agent for a long time, I, will, I would make an interesting villain. Because, you know, real villains in life are always, they're charming, weird, interesting people. They're not, they're not one-dimensional people at all. It's why they can suck so many people in. And so I had wanted this. And then I was minding my own business, and this all happened in like a 24-hour period. Uh, there's a, this gentleman's in town, Mr. Riffin, he's in this house for two days. Here's this script, would you go see him? And, you know, I've tried to convince directors of parts that I really thought I could do over the years, and they had someone else totally different in mind. And it's really hard to do it that way. But if the director is leaning towards you, you're in good shape. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the key line of dialogue for me is the exchange between you and Ryan Gosling. He says, I can't shake your hand. My hands are dirty. And you say, well, mine are too. And, and that to me told me so much about what was to come in the film. It tells me that nobody's hands are clean in this movie. There's going to be a lot of anti-heroes in this movie. There's, there's Absolutely. There's no... There's no perfect person, there's, there's, everybody is flawed. And I think that's what makes, for me, I, drive, I, saw, I live here, so I see things in advance. I saw this, I don't know, three or four weeks ago now, and uh, it was one of the first movies I saw, and it has stayed with me so much, and I Isn't think, yeah. Me too, yeah. me too, and it's, I'm not just saying this. Mm -hmm. This, I saw it, I've only seen it once, so I'm gonna see it again tonight. So I saw it at the LA Film Festival. Now I'm seeing a movie, wondering what he cut out, and, yeah, yeah. and, and I'm still lost in about 80% of it the first time, but both my wife and I, like four days later, said, are you still thinking about this? Yeah. And I don't know why. I've been trying to figure out. I asked Nicholas. I, I think Nicholas was, because I, I said to him, I felt like I had a dream. <laughs> you know, the movie started and ended, and where did I go? <laughs> and he consciously talks about movies like that. Right. He says dreams are 94 minutes in length. Right. And he try, you know, he's got all these theories. But whatever it is, it sticks there. It That's sure for sure. Well, I'll tell you, for me, um, I think it's because uh, I've been describing it as kind of an art house thriller, as, you know, a, 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 a thinking person's crime drama, because it's not afraid to take its time getting places. It's Absolutely. not afraid to let conversations hang in the air Absolutely. and just sort of have pauses between the actors. And when you have actors like you and Carrie Mulligan and Ryan Gosling, and Brian Cranston, you you're you, you're okay with leaving some space because Absolutely. there's something and, going on on their faces. And in this modern age of movie making, people are so afraid to do that. And I, you know, 
it's refreshing. Yes, yes. It's refreshing because, uh, especially in this movie, the silences were screaming. Yeah. Uh, I know. I and now I'm telling you, as a person watching the movie, he dumps all the sound out completely a couple of times. Right. There's nothing. There's no air. And, you know, you, your heart starts to beat because why is he doing, yeah. what's going to happen, you know? Much more than a big drum roll. Yeah. Well, I think all those things are, they're, they're what I call, like, uh, not the silences, but when directors use, you know, uh, a, a noise that comes out of nowhere to make you tense. I call them booyah moments because they don't really mean anything. They, they give you a little shock. You get a little jump in your chair when right. you see it. But then nothing happens. Right. And, and it's just a way, I don't know if it's supposed to keep you awake, if it's supposed to make you think that the movie's more exciting than it actually is. But that it, one, I think. I think so. And yeah. I think it's really brave to take a film and really just let it hang on the strength of its story, on the strength of its performances, and allow it to breathe. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And, you know, I would imagine that there's going to be some people who want to see Fast and the Furious 4 that are going to be going, come on, man, yeah. you know, crash more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, see, for me, I, as I said, I saw this three or four weeks ago, and uh, the movie made me so tense <laughs> while I was watching it that after the movie was over, I still felt upset. I, st I felt the tense. I'm telling you, I felt the same thing, and I'm not just saying that. And it lasted a while. I dreamt about it one night. I went online trying to see if I could hear the music again. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I just wanted to, like, just revisit it just to see what I was still feeling. So that, to me, I knew it was working on some level. Uh, let's talk about the character. He's obviously a sociopath. Is he a psychopath? Is he... No, I'll tell you what, because I don't think that the character Bernie Rose has killed anyone for 20 years, 25 years, maybe once a long time ago. This is not a position. He is in this position. It's his life or their life. And he doesn't want to be shot and, and killed. So that's what he's doing. And he's angry about it. And he's sad about it. And he's like, you know, like in the first thing in the pizzeria where, you know, he says, to, yeah, it's your turn to clean up my mess. You know, it, he didn't want to get up that morning and do this. Right. And that knife case is, you know, he's a knife collector. In the book, they called him Bernie the Knife right. because that's what he was really good at. Right. And he looks at them and he collects them. I don't think he thinks about killing anybody with them. They're just, uh, it's like collecting coins. Yes, yeah. Well, and it struck me he probably collects nice things. He probably has a house full of interesting antique things. He did. Things. We had some a scene in his apartment. It was very well decorated. I mean, it was it was nicely thought of. It was shot in a very old, classy apartment building in downtown Los Angeles right. that sort of weird people live in. Yeah, yeah. And it had, you know, we, we put, I had a, a picture of the Mona Lisa up there. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted a copy of the painting. Your character, Bernie, was a film producer in the 80s, made some action movies, I think he says, it in, in the early part of the movie. You live, work in, within the industry in Hollywood. You must have met characters like this, guys who have some money that you don't know where it comes from, that, you know, they've made movies, I don't know. I've been lucky enough to meet guys at least one step up. Right, yeah, who yeah, yeah. you know? Because I don't think Bernie Rose went into film because he had any idea about film. I think it was a way to make money. Yeah, yeah. It was a real business adventure. Right. And there are still some people like that in Hollywood. They've been a little more successful than Bernie has because they've been around for a long time. But pretty much, you know, in in Hollywood, 
the money that comes into Hollywood, that guy doesn't really exist anymore because it's more of a banker's, it's more of a raising cash. Yeah, because you need 150 million bucks now yeah, instead of five. Let's put it yeah. this way. I don't think the mob is paying for a, a cheap action movie anymore. Yeah, yeah. They're moving drugs. They're not they're not doing that. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because even in, even in, uh, was it, was it Goodfellas or, you know, where they wanted to go out or, oh, no, no, it was that, in The Sopranos yeah. where, come on, I can make some money, I can yeah. make some money. It's yeah. like, that, that's what it was more like. Well, I was thinking that Bernie Rose was also kind of like Gene Hackman's character, a little bit in uh, Get Shorty, you know, the, the guy who just sort of, but, but just sort of like slummed around a little bit on the, like had some money, but slummed around a little bit on the edges of the film business, trying to get something going for himself and, you know, probably made his real money and you know, something else, a little more nefarious. Oh, definitely something else. I said to Nicholas what I thought Bernie was doing right now in 2011. One of the things he was doing, which is a big business, is exporting cars to Asia. Because if you can, you know, you can get a lot of money for BMWs. If you can buy them in America and get out of the you know, trick the government into thinking that you're, and then export them, it's just a cash cow. Yeah. So I thought Bernie was probably into that a lot. <laughs> but I don't think Bernie went into the movie business for the glamour. I think he went into it for the profit. <laughs> and that's what I like that line where, you know, he has that one moment of a couple of critics called him European. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which I think people will call drive a little bit. They'll say it's a European thrill, it's a I, European I style. Th I think so, yeah. I think so. And we know what that means. It means that you're allowed to have pauses. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And not everything blows up. Yeah. yeah. You're on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter. And I've been following you on Twitter uh, since you've been here, talking about, uh, you know, having been across the border in a long time, hope meth is still okay, all that stuff. Very funny. Um, it tell me, uh, I'm interested in social media and, and using social media as a means to, to um, meet, I don't know so much about promote yourself, but just sort of express yourself to a larger well, that's audience. That's what it was. It started with, you know, I had a book that came out in May. And... My wife, who's very involved, with, among other things, she's arts editor for Huffington Post. She's been doing this longer than I have ever thought of it. She sort of was the one who said, you know, you need to, you need to do this. And so I started for real practical reasons, like trying to say, hey, I'll be at a bookstore in Manhattan, come and say hello. And then... I found it was an interesting way to see a headline and have a feeling about it and make a comment on the Republican debate. And, <laughs> and it becomes, you know, I used to call my friends and do these lines. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a chance. But I, I put, I'm, I hate to say, I put more thought into it than it deserves. No, it's addictive. No, the thing is, Twitter is addictive. The whole computer I find. world is addictive. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I've, is it... Uh, uh, you know, as a comic, I think, and I'm not one, so I'm supposing here. But I, I have this. Thanks, thanks, Cams. I have this idea that 
um, when you're looking at something and trying to find the humor in it, you've got to boil down the elements to a certain degree. And Twitter well, you forces really you have to, to do boil. that. Right. But as I said in one of my early tweets is that Twitter is turning all of us into Bob Hope. Because, you know, my whole comedy career was the anti-Hope. Exactly. I, I like to take 11 minutes to tell you something. And now I'm back to, just looked at the door. My shoes are wet. You know, I mean, Twitter forces you. So... The real, the real part about Twitter will be to see if I can ever <laughs> write in long form again. Yeah, yeah. If it's killed me, it's been the devil. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, it, it'll, it'll teach you how to write chapter headline or chapter titles. Chapter titles. Maybe that's or it. Or greeting cards. Yes. <laughs> That was Arbor Brooks talking about Drive and Twitter and lots of things. You know, in the six years since we did this interview, he hasn't turned into Bob Hope. In fact, his Twitter account, which is easy to find, it's at Albert Brooks, capital A, capital B, is a really fascinating and often really hilarious look at the America that he now lives in. Now, depending on your point of view, Gilbert Gottfried is either the voice of the parrot Iago in Disney's Aladdin, Maybe you know him as the squawk behind the Affleck duck, if Giggy hasn't had for a little while, and we'll get to that in a little bit in the interview. Maybe you know him as the host of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. If you look him up on Wikipedia, you'll see that his work is classified as satire, crude humor, blue comedy, improvisational comedy, black comedy, and insult comedy. He is one of the most famous stand-ups going. He's consistently hilarious, if a little rude, as the Wikipedia page might suggest. You'll find him in this interview to be politically incorrect, to say whatever is on his mind, and he really, I don't think, has any fear of the consequences. We kick things off by talking about a documentary called Gilbert, directed by Neil Berkeley, that kind of shows him in a different light. Thinking about me in a whole new way is like, oh, you mean funny? <laughs> <laughs> now, it took about a year from the time that you were first pitched on this idea that they yeah, were going to do a documentary. Maybe two years, and yeah. And what either changed your mind? What were you thinking about in those two years that, that finally made you say yes to this? Uh, nothing. I, I, it, it's one of these things. He wanted a, he, he said to me, he goes, I, I always uh, had this dream of doing a Gilbert Gottfried documentary. And I said, well, you should really set your dreams a lot higher than that. Uh, you know, start off with a Yakov Smirnov documentary, like called, called uh, Why They Country. <laughs> In America, you drink coffee. In Russia, Coffee drinks you. <laughs> what a country. <laughs> uh, what's ever happened to Yakov Smirnov? Yeah, uh, oh, I think he's gone the way of uh, Branson. Right, right. Yeah. 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 So he just sells out. He's sitting back yeah. on a big stack of money in yeah, Branson yeah. somewhere. Bought, bought his own theater, I think. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, so he was... Going after me, and I didn't. I never wanted to do the documentary, 
And he just kept nagging me, and, and I'm too much of a wimp to go get away from me. Did it feel too much like reality television? Is that what you were thinking? Oh, it definitely felt that way, uh, definitely intrusive and, eva- and invasive. And I, I say in the film, you know, that fear I have is like that scene from Wizard of Oz where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, don't look behind the curtain. And, and, and when you do, though, I mean, it, it's a really lovely portrait of this life. I think that, I mean, I think you're as surprised by your life as viewers may oh, be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me a, a couple of things. First of all, to be followed around for six months by Neil Berkeley, the director, uh, were there any limits that you imposed on him? And if so, did he bother to follow them? Because you're in a bathrobe for a good chunk oh, of this yeah. movie. So I'm assuming that he was just sort of in your house a yeah. lot. Yeah, a bathrobe <laughs> that I got for free, of course. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, no, he was he was following me for a while. And I think it's two years he was followed. Yeah. And he followed me to clubs. What was interesting to the audience, I think, you know, they see me in the backstage area of these nightclubs, and I think a lot of people assume, you know, you go to these nightclubs and backstage it's like Frank Sinatra's <laughs> dressing room. You know, you got a showgirl sitting on your lap and you're having a martini. There's red velvet, maybe. Oh, yes, yeah. 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 <laughs> and a cigarette holder. Uh, but, yeah. It's just like the the work quality of it. You know. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's day-to-day. I mean, you've been doing stand-up since you were 15 years old. Yes. And what pushed you towards that? I mean, we see this in the film, but tell people why you wanted, at 15, because I can't imagine, I'm a public person, I speak in front of people, I do that sort of thing. I can't imagine doing what you do, though, getting up on stage, and if it's not going well, my instinct would be to run. My instinct would be to get out of there oh, as fast yeah. as possible. At 15, I'm not sure that I would have had the nerve to do it. What got you up there at 15? See, I, I've, I always say this. It wasn't so much nerve as stupidity. <laughs> it, it's like, first of all, having that idea that, oh, I could have a career in show business. That's crazy. Because <laughs> uh, it, it, it's like... People say, you know, if your kids want to go into show business, what are you going to do? And it's like, I I think, like, I could understand if they said, I want to reach into the trash can and take out soda cans <laughs> and turn them in for five cents each. Right. That at least makes some sense. Yeah. Show business doesn't. It, and it's like, but I was too stupid then to know the odds against making it. And um, and I was too stupid to, you know, know that if they're booing you and hissing, maybe it's time to get out. So I just kept doing it. And it's difficult for people that don't know. I don't think people realize that comics frequently aren't paid, that they're seeing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that they, there's a thing called bringer shows where you have to bring 10 people that oh, are all yeah. going to order two drinks and, you know, that sort of thing. And then maybe you'll get a spot at midnight at the end of the show. Kind yeah. Of there's all that sort of thing. Um, did you ever give out flyers on the street? Did you ever have to do uh, that sort of thing? No, that thing seemed like it came later on, right. the flyers on the street. I see that all the time in Times Square and the yeah. village and everything. Uh, but. Yeah, no, I just remember, like, you'd, uh, we used to, like, wait on line 
outside of the improv to be the first to, you know, get an audition spot. And uh, so we did that. And, and yeah, and then you'll there'll be like years of just waiting around the clubs where you don't get on at all. You're just there and you come back home at four in the morning (laughs) or some crazy hour. And... uh, yeah, and no money. Did you feel you were learning stuff, standing at the back of the club watching everybody? Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I mean, you learn more, obviously, when you're actually on there. Yeah. Uh, I guess you learn what not to do by watching other oh, people. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I, I just remember that, like all those. Uh, and what, what scares me uh, when I think about it, you know, I'm like one of those people who's always going, oh, my career's nowhere, it's a mess, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then I always think of all those years at the clubs where there would be, it seemed like billions of people that I saw every single night, right. also hanging out all night, also trying to get on, and and I have no idea where they are, I don't remember their names. Do you think that you were just funnier than they were, or were you more patient, or what was it? God knows. Uh, it's, it's really, I, I, I guess you could always attribute uh, stuff to dumb luck. Yeah. To, you know, you could never underestimate that. I, I guess so, but you, you have to put yourself out there, though, in order to get the dumb luck. It just oh, doesn't yes, arrive, yes. it doesn't fall into your lap. Yeah. And so you're 15, 16, 17 years old. You're standing in lineups to do this. What was it when you realized, or when was it that you realized that it was working? Was there, you know, a stretch where audiences received you more warmly, where where you realized, wow, this is something. Like, I, I didn't waste my time standing in line. Well, I would, it, it was funny. Like, uh, I think Steve Martin said in some, in his book, like, uh, it's easy to be great. It's hard to be good. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, it's a matter of just being consistent is the first thing you have to accomplish right. because you could have those nights you go on and they're laughing and applauding at, at everything you say, you know, you could wink your eye and they're <laughs> laughing and applauding. And then you, you think I am great. And then the next night you go on and uh, they're booing you with the same stuff. And so that's the first thing, to be consistent. And uh, I remember I would like, I mainly, when I started out, it was mainly impressions that I did. So I was, you know, no, not that much different in style and like, you know, Rich Little or Frank Gorshin or those people, you know, if... If it was uh, Peter Lorre as your waiter, it might go something like this. <laughs> and, uh, and then, I don't know, I started getting tired of just doing impressions, and I started, you know, screwing around in between. And then I started screwing, and, and that's the way I found I was the most creative when I was on stage, just screwing off just anything that, popped into my head. And I guess, you know, that's the time to do it. Oh, yeah. That, you know, when you're on at midnight 
and yes. you know there's 25 people in the place rather than 500 that's the time to do that and 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 it gets harder and harder to do it because when you go on and they recognize you mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you have to live up to their expectations so is it one of those things where, you know, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you get the, the famous sort of Malcolm Gladwell idea that you do something for 10,000 hours and then that's when you can be good at it? Oh, yeah. 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 You just have to put in the time. Yeah. It's it, it's like I, I don't believe – like I'll hear about these comedy classes. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't get that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think – you want a comedy class, get up on a stage or stand out on the street if you can't get up on a stage <laughs> and and start telling you learn more that way than in, you know, uh, 12 years of comedy classes. <laughs> I, I, I remember, um, I think it was uh, Larry's, I, on my podcast, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal we're, podcast. We're going to get there. Yeah, yeah. but uh, we we had on uh, Larry Storch from yeah. F Drew, and and he told us that uh, I think it was him. He he said to he was friends with Buddy Hackett, right? And he said to Buddy Hackett, "You know, I'm I'm thinking of taking acting classes," and he goes. Buddy Hackett goes, learning to act by taking an acting class is like learning to drive in your garage. (laughs) (laughs) It is a surprising portrait. Uh, I think that we see a side of you that we've not seen before. You're married. You've got two adorable kids. uh, You live in a beautiful place in New York. None of that should be a surprise, but you seem to think so. And I mean, maybe by extension, I do now as well. But but it's a lovely portrait uh, of you. Were you afraid of kind of lifting that curtain a little bit and having people know too much about you so they look at you differently when you're on stage now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It always goes back to that scene in Wizard of Oz, you know, because when they pull back the curtain, the almighty wizard's just this guy and he's like he's nervous around people. And uh, so, yeah, though, that definitely scares me. It's kind of like they, you know, they always talk about in the old movies, you know, you knew nothing about these people. They they. You know, it's like nowadays, uh, you know, you would you'd be able to tweet. Uh, you'd go on the Internet and go, hey, Humphrey Bogart, Casablanca sucked, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's like everyone has, you know, a connection. Yeah. Everyone has contact. Back then, these were like gods who lived in the heavens. And so you didn't know anything about them. And it's like, I don't know, maybe it was better in a lot of ways. Well, do you think it's why we now seem to live in an era that there's no real movie stars? I mean, Tom Cruise is very famous, Will Smith, I don't know, there's a hand, you know, Ryan Gosling, all those people. But I don't think people line up to see movies 
by Tom Cruise. You don't go say, oh, I'm just going to go see whatever movie Tom Cruise no. is in. Like you might have years ago with Humphrey Bogart or Gary Cooper. Yeah, or Gary, Gary you know, Grant. Yeah, one of yeah. those. Is that maybe it? That, we've, that we're too, we feel we know too much about them? Uh, it could be. I mean, it's so much has become, we've, we're, yeah, we're so familiar with everything. It, well, it's just like in the old days, there were like this handful of movie critics and there were columnists and there were writers uh, and, and different performers, filmmakers. And but now it nowadays everybody is anything they want. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's but it, it's interesting, though, to to see you. With the the curtain lifted yeah. a little bit here, uh, because you know one of the things that you learn from the film, as we talked about a little bit earlier, it's not all that glamorous being on the road. Do you? I, I know that you you don't always love the idea of performing. I think yeah. you love performing, but you don't always love the idea of performing. Oh, is yes. that is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, it's it's um, well, I I say in the documentary, and it's true. When I'm waiting backstage to go on, there's that fantasy I have that the manager comes back and says, we had a fire or a flood, and uh, uh, here's your check, go home. <laughs> and I think that, to me, I mean, I I still remember like a handful of times where I thought it was two shows a night mm -hmm. at a particular club, and then they said, oh, it's only one show tonight, and I, I would... Boy, it was like a billion-pound weight lifted <laughs> off me. But once you hit the stage, though, it yeah. seems like something takes over, and you kind yeah. of see it. I remember years ago watching uh, The Tonight Show. Robin Williams was on The Tonight Show. And I don't know if you remember, but years ago, they used to show them backstage. Oh, yes. ready, And then they'd follow, the yes. camera would follow them out. And, and Williams was just standing there, and he was very kind of like sort of almost uptight. And then they're like, and help me welcome Robin yeah. Williams. And then all of a sudden, he changed oh, as he hit the stage, yeah. right? And, uh, yeah, there's definitely and, – and also, when you're waiting to go on, it's, it's kind of like uh, like when you're about to go into either the ocean or a swimming pool. And you know you dip your toe in, and you go. It's that's freezing. I can't. I can't do that. It's freezing in there. And then, so finally, you just have to jump in, and then you're okay. Well, I think there's a really. I'm speaking with Gilbert Gottfried, by the way. The new documentary is called Gilbert. There's a there's a scene in the documentary that that uh, sort of really displays that very well. I think, and it's. At a at a, a charity function, and uh, a man has just made a speech about his daughter having cancer, and and it's a you know heartfelt sort of thing. And then you're the entertainment after this. Yeah. You are following uh, this thing. They're raising money for for children with cancer, and you get up. and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, and but you could see you kind of like rev up, and you gave your show. You did. Yeah. You didn't compromise. Yeah, and it was it was that was a. That must have been a tough one. I yeah, that was an extremely tough one because yeah, this this man got up on stage, did a speech about how his daughter wasn't feeling well. Then she was diagnosed with cancer. How he would drive her to the hospital and everything, and and it you know I remember being backstage and I, and thinking well I'm gonna go up. I'm gonna do my midget goes to a hooker joke and. <laughs> 
and and I am going to be driven out of town. I've been in enough trouble before. Yep. Now, forget it. The internet will explode. Sparks will be coming out of it. And I thought, this will finish me for good. And then I went on, and, and they were laughing. And uh, in the doc, it shows the man who had yes. just made this speech laughing, and he's sort of he's you can see the obvious joy on his face. Yeah, it, and that to me was like a, a magical thing to watch. Yeah, that I was doing that. Like he he's, has like this horrible thing that he's facing, and for those few moments that I'm on, he looked like there was a joy. And we've only got about a minute left. Is that why you do it, or no? I do it so they hand me a check at the end of the night. <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of people have heard about uh, the Affleck uh, debacle. Oh, I, I don't know. I thought it, kept, it was kept out of the news. <laughs> well, it, it, it's an interesting part of the documentary because it is a career high at some level, I think. And then it was taken away because of some tweets uh, that, that you put out on the internet. So it raises a couple of questions. When is too soon to joke about something, if something can be uh, seen as too soon? Uh, but the part that really got me was you are talking about a conversation with your agent. And after all this has happened and you've been fired from being the voice of the duck, he says, oh, I got your gig and wherever it is. And you said, well, what kind of money are we talking about? And he says, I don't think you're in a position to be asking about money anymore. Yes. Tell me about that moment, because I almost got choked up saying it. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what that moment must have been like for you. Uh, yeah. I, I remember, because it was already all the moments, all, all everything, or every second of those days. Yeah. I mean, you know, with the internet, you know, uh, the internet, I thought this is the entire world mm -hmm. who feels this way. That's what the internet seemed to me like. Yeah. Like like, like they took a vote of every single human being in the world, and they hated me. And, yeah, he said that to me. And then, then of course, like uh, years later, when I still had a career and I still had fans, he said, oh, I always knew that, you know, for, uh, and but yeah, that was a horrible moment, and I, I remember for weeks, reporters and photographers would be waiting outside the apartment building. Some would sit in cars, some would hide in doorways, like like they they found some war criminal yeah, or head yeah. of the mob, and uh, yeah, the internet kept you know, spewing hatred toward me. And it was kind of like, I, I think the internet makes me feel sentimental about old-time lynch mobs. <laughs> because at least with the old-time lynch mobs, they had to go out, get yeah. their hands dirty, and deal with other people. Right. Now you sit in your underwear on the couch and form your lynch mob. And, and I didn't realize how the internet worked that way mm -hmm. and it was like uh and also you know what you realize just like that old saying you know uh you know uh as long as they get your name right right 
because what was There's funny, no such thing as bad publicity as long as they spell your oh, name right. Yes, right, yeah. yes. And it was like, because what I realized, whether it was a thing on the internet or any of the TV shows or news shows or radio or newspapers, they would go, you know, Gilbert Gottfried's career is over. That's our top story. Gilbert Gottfried. And, and what, what you realize then is if your career truly is over, you're not the top story. <laughs> That's right. It all, it means you have a career if they report. So it's that, all about perspective then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're reporting your career's over, your career's not over. When your career's truly over, <laughs> they don't say you could rescue 10 babies <laughs> from a burning building and they they won't bother putting you in the back of the newspaper. And... Um, yeah, so th so that that's you know you never hear, hey, remember when the original Dukes of Hazard went on strike and they replaced them with the two guys who were supposed to be their cousins, and then the original ones went back. Well, those two guys who played the cousins are top story tonight. <laughs> is their career is over? <laughs> what was the reaction of fans because they never left you? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, this was a media-created firestorm. Really. Oh yes, yeah. and and I always felt like and and like I found out through the internet that I was fired, and and it's like I've like soaked it for as much free press as they yeah. could get. Then they replaced me with a, a low-budget sound alike, at thus bringing closure to a horrible yeah. tragedy. And yeah, but I, and I think. As far as fans go, there there is kind of that thing that like uh, in in a way it kind of like is like slapping a new and improved sticker on on you know your right. dishwashing <laughs> liquid. They slap that on you. Oh, that's new and improved. And and I think people then they can claim they hate you and that they uh, they want you dead. But they still want to know what you have to say. Right. It's it's kind of like these people, like uh, I don't know, Bill O'Reilly or um, uh, what? What's her name? The blonde. Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter. You know, they, they. I think they know exactly. I think Ann Coulter knows exactly what she's doing. Like when she comes out there, she'll go. I think we should drown puppies. <laughs> And I'll go, cheat and culture said we should drown. Oh, this is horrible. I'm going to get her book and just find out what horrible things this this dirty bitch is saying. You know, and it's like, uh, and it, it fascinates, people want, it, it's kind of like, I remember when Michael Richards yeah. got in trouble on the club. And, uh, you know, he said the N-word, which also is something that makes me laugh when people use terms like the N-word and the F-word. It's like, well, when you say that thing, everyone's saying the word aloud in their head. And so what What are you really... And and But the owner of that club said... Uh, from now on, if any of the comics use that word, they'll be fined. 
And I'm thinking, so that you're telling the audience then, uh, we we're uh, clean and sanitized. Yeah, we're censoring. Yeah. yeah, we're censoring it. Everything will be clean. You won't be surprised. You won't be offended. Nothing. And and to me, that would be like saying. Okay, when you go on this roller coaster, it moves very slowly. It's always level, never drops, never raises up, never does a loop the loop, you know. Would you tweet those same jokes that got you in trouble again today about uh, something yeah. else? Yeah. I I mean, I I I always say this like uh, you know, people say do you think twice now? And I always say I think twice but i do it anyway you know it's like <laughs> well it, that, that's interesting because uh one of the things and we'll get to this this will spill over into the next segment uh talking about the aristocrats joke yes which was a turning point and we see it in the film and we see the moment when it happens and i remember watching that for the first time years ago and and you could see the wheels turning in your head, and then all of a sudden, the filthiest joke that I had ever heard yes. to that moment uh, came <laughs> spilling out of your lips. And until that point, I don't think I had ever heard you swear on stage. Oh, yeah. Had I? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I... Maybe, maybe, but certainly not on television. Maybe yeah. I hadn't yeah. seen you swear oh, yeah. on television. And and I was quite amazed by, yeah. uh, by the, <laughs> the retelling of that joke. And in the documentary, Gilbert... We, uh, we hear that this is, I think it's Lewis Black that says, the aristocrats, for people who don't know, is the filthiest joke ever told. Yeah. And it's the kind of joke that comics tell backstage. Rarely is it ever told on stage. It's the kind of thing, and you riff and you make it yeah. bigger and dirtier yeah. and wilder. Uh, and you told it after telling some 9-11 jokes shortly after 9-11. Yeah. And it was a way, I guess, to... Like say, like forget about that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm telling another kind of thing yeah, over it, here. It was funny because and and they did like a whole film about the yeah. aristocrats joke. Uh, and now I think you you can't get that that film anymore, the aristocrats, because yeah. like the company that produced it closed up. Which is too bad because it is truly funny. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. We were just talking about the aristocrats and how you told that joke, and it kind of it, it changed things a little yeah, bit afterwards. It, how did it change things? Well, it was it was just like a, <clears throat> a few days after September 11th that, and and it's like they were going to have the U Hefner roast. At first, they thought they might cancel it altogether, and there were a lot of guests who were going to come to it that wouldn't fly. Uh, you know, obviously. Right. And uh, <clears throat> then they decided to have it anyway. And, and like, the world was in shock when that happened, and particularly New York, mm -hmm. where the Hugh Hefneros was happening, because there was, like, black clouds floating overhead. And, um, and so they were having it, and you could... And I, and I thought, hey, I want to address the elephant in the room and, and I want to do something that will, you know, knock people off their seats. And, you know, so I said, I have to leave early tonight. I have to catch a flight to California. I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State Building. And the audience starts booing and hissing and gasping. One guy yelled out too soon, which I thought meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup and punchline. 
<laughs> That's and, how a comic thinks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and then I figured, ah, you know, I've gone to this level of hell. Why not go to the very bottom level? <laughs> you know, say hello to Hitler down there. And, uh, and then... I go into the aristocrats joke, which is incest and bestiality. Yeah, and the audience starts cracking up and they're howling. They're, and and uh, I, I remember there being reviews afterwards that some people were saying it was cathartic. Uh, and, and another person said, it's like I performed a mass tracheotomy <laughs> on the crowd. And and it just showed, like, here were these people with this weight hanging over them. And and now, all of a sudden, they're laughing, and, and they needed that release. Yeah. You know, in tragic times, when you're facing tragedy, uh, you, you need that kind of release. And that is the joke, I think, that got you uh, labeled by Entertainment Weekly. Out of the 101 comedians who appear on screen in The Aristocrats, no one is funnier or more disgusting than Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that to me is an that, honor. That's a legacy for your kids right there. No. And, and in the movie, your son Max says, uh, I think he's asked, what does your dad do for a living? He's a comedian. What does he do? He makes people laugh. Is he funny? Nope. Yeah. He's, he's, yes. Yeah. And and one time, <laughs> which when, is adorable. Yeah. And and one time he when he was in preschool, uh, we we met with the teacher, and the teacher says, "Well, he doesn't pay attention in school." And he's always trying to be funny. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to beat him because I don't know where he gets this behavior from. And uh, then the teacher said, she asked him, she said, where did you learn how to be funny? And he said, from my daddy. And she goes, oh, your daddy's funny? And he goes... He's funny at home, not at work. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. That's really funny. Uh, do they have they? They've never seen you live, I would assume. Uh, they, like a handful of times, my wife would bring them to watch like the first. Who's, who's sitting right next yes. to us here? Yeah, she'd bring them to watch the first five or six right. minutes, and you know when I do stuff. <laughs> Before it gets too perverted. <laughs> well, the podcast is called Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Uh, it's great. And I love that you give voice to a lot of people who people have forgotten about, maybe, or older actors and things. You bring on people who uh, will talk about almost anything because they yeah. their their edit button is now switched oh, off. Oh, yes. And it's like... I, in in a way, I kind of feel like the podcast is kind of like I remember they used to be shows like Fantasy Island yeah. and Love Boat and Murder, She Wrote. And you'd see these actors and actresses pop up who you swore were dead. <laughs> it's Olivia de Havilland yes, on Love Boat. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And. And and he'd be having a love affair with she'd be having a love affair with Fred Astaire right. or, or Lou Ayers <laughs> or Herd Hatfield. That's right. And yeah. and so you find these people. Yeah. And and it's like when you watch those shows, you go, Oh, wait a minute, they're yeah. as good as they ever were. Yeah. And 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 if you 
forgot about them, you'd be reminded. And people who never knew them in the first place would go, hey, this guy's good. And so I kind of like to have it on record. Like, look at this mm -hmm. guy, you know, he's still around. So we've had people like, well, I mentioned Larry, Larry Storch and, uh, oh, God. I, well, singing oh, with Dick Van Dyke must have been a, a oh, career yes, highlight. I sang yeah. with Dick Van Dyke, uh, uh, put on a happy face and supercalifragilistic. <laughs> and so, yeah, sitting across from Dick Van Dyke and joking back and forth. And I forget the other guy from F Troop. There was the guy, he was the real clumsy guy. Yep. Uh, Tim or Jim or something. I'm just uh, looking it up now here as we speak. Ken Berry. That's it. Yeah, both of them from F Troop were on the show. Uh, four members of Batman. Uh, Adam West, Burt Ward, Julie Newmar, uh. and Lee Merriweather. <laughs> uh, Bruce Stern. Who's got an amazing memory, yeah. Bruce Stern. And great stories. Oh, yeah. uh, incredible stories. And uh, it's funny because there's been this show like uh, Joan and Betty. Yeah, 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 few, and, yeah. And he was actually there. He, he was right. in uh, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And, uh, oh, God, we've had so many people. We had this actor, Martin Kaplan, uh, he's one of those guys, if you saw him, you'd know him immediately. Yeah. He's a comic actor. And he was discovered by Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> wow. and, yeah, so it's it's an amazing thing. Every it, now and then, we'll get someone below 100. Yeah. And, you know, we've had on Judd Apatow and Henry Winkler and people like that. Interesting to have an archive of all that stuff, though. An oh, archive yes. of these people speaking freely. I guess, because yeah. back in the day when they were making F Troop, they weren't talking to the press the same way they're talking yeah. to you and right now. the funny part about that is there are the people who go, hey, look, I'm like 110. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not watching what I say anymore. Yeah. Then there are the other ones who are like 200 years old, and yet it's it, it's ingrained in them that they have to protect their image. Those are the, the studio-trained ones, I bet. Yes. The people that were on, you know, contract, who never oh, became yes. really super famous, but were on contract to MGM and Universal and places like that where you were, you went to class and you learned oh, how to yeah. be, you know, how to have a career. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and it's like, well, there's this, we, we had on uh, Marty Allen. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> Burns and Allen. And I've spoken to him on the phone a couple of right. times off the air. And he would always say, hey, hey, you want to hear a joke? <laughs> and he would uh, tell me, like, these dirty jokes. And when I asked him, I said, could you tell me some of the jokes you tell me off the air? And he, he refused to do that. Really? And, I mean, he's, he's God knows. He's got to be 100 years old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're the, close the, to it. The Sphinx is younger <laughs> than him. Right? It's like... <laughs> So the podcast is called Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. You can hear that uh, easily online. One of the things that I kept noticing in your apartment, 
Oh yeah, is the Big Frankenstein. Oh yes. Tell me about the Big Frankenstein because you there's you relate to Frankenstein, and so yes. there's a few times that it comes up in the film. Yeah, I I mention in the film when I when my daughter was born. I felt like the Frankenstein monster in that scene where he comes upon the girl who's throwing daisies yeah. in the lake. And he's like, hur, 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 hur. And, and he doesn't know. And he eventually throws her into the lake, not, not in a bad way. He, he thought she would float. And, uh, but yeah, so, so that's the way I, I, I felt. And, I, and then... With my son, I was no more better trained <laughs> there. I, I, I remember uh, one time at, when my daughter was just a few days old, uh, my wife calls me and says, uh, oh, where are you now? And I said, oh, I went to the store or the bank or whatever. And she goes, uh, and is Lily with you? And, and I said, oh, bleep. And I ran back home because I thought, oh, my God, I have a daughter now. <laughs> and 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 she's like a month old by herself in the apartment. <laughs> and, and I ran frantically back home because all of a sudden I go, oh, my God. I'm yes. a dad now. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And I, and I didn't even throw her a piece of bologna before I left. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And, and the Frankenstein thing, the poster I have, mm -hmm. I've had that since I was a kid. Wow. Yeah, I bought it in the back of a monster magazine yeah, yeah. and kept it all these years. And, and then my wife, Dara, had it framed. And because I would put it in the back of a closet, <laughs> in the back of a. And, and what. What other what one guy noticed, and I don't, I don't think that many people notice it, when you come into the apartment, I have four life masks. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, yeah, I saw those. Yeah, it's Vincent Price, Bela Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr., and Al Pacino. Really, and yeah. life masks are like wax masks made yeah. from the actual person's face. Yeah, yeah, they do, and and uh, I think they do it. So, like, if they have to do an extensive makeup job, yeah. they they could fit it to your face. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, I, I also, I don't think they showed that there. I also one time wrote a get well card. I sent a get well card to Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> and, and, and I got back, and I, I have it there in a little frame on the wall, uh, a postcard size picture of the Wolfman, and it's signed Lon Chaney on the bottom. That's amazing. Yeah. I have a letter from James Stewart. Wow. I, I, I heard that if you wrote James Stewart a letter, that he would write you back. And the and it was, uh, and I mean, it's long gone now, the, the address, but it was literally uh, James Stewart, P.O. Box 99, Beverly Hills, California, whatever the postal code was. And I wrote him a letter, and I got back a personalized letter from him uh, autographed, and that is framed and hanging in my house right wow. now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, had I known that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's like I also... <laughs> I, I lucked out with get well cards. I sent a get well <laughs> well, card. Which shows you're caring. Yes. Yeah, yeah. To Jimmy Durante. Wow. And and he uh and he sent back a card saying something like, you know, uh your card meant so much to me. 
and I have that. And I also have, well, this one person I sort of, I mean, I didn't, can't say I was friends with, but uh, I, I listened to a lot. And every one time I had a job in the Broadway theaters. A friend of mine had it in the concessions right. where you sell, like, you know, drinks and T-shirts. And around that time, there were great plays on Broadway. There was uh, American Buffalo with Robert Duvall and Kenneth McMillan wow. and John Savage. There was Equus with Richard Burton and then another version with um, uh, uh, Anthony Perkins. Wow, wow. And, and also, oh, and also uh, there was uh, Matter of Gravity. And Matter of Gravity starred Catherine Hepburn. And Catherine Hepburn would come out before the audience got in and walk around the theater and open the doors because she liked air to be in there. And so after a while, she trained us that we had to open the, all the doors before she got there. And she would talk to us. And, and she would tell us stories about, you know, Jimmy and <laughs> and and uh, Spencer and yeah. Bogey <laughs> and Spence and you know she'd be talking about Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Cagney, uh, Bogey and <laughs> and uh, so after she had left after the play closed, I sent her a card and she sent me back a really nice card and then she sent me she had made copies of she used to do drawings. And she had a drawing of herself. So, uh, yeah. So uh, You could open a museum. I should. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, where was the Amazing Colossal podcast when Catherine Hepburn was oh, telling you these stories? Oh, my God. Yeah, there are so many of those people yeah. that I wish were alive now that I, you know, like I once met, uh, I, twi I actually twice met, uh, Norman Fell. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the funny thing, I used to do jokes about Norman Fell just because he was just this funny character. And, and funny it's a name. funny name. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, but I always enjoyed him, and, yeah. and he could do both drama and comedy equally well. And, and, and he hung out with the Rat Pack, and he was uh, an interesting character. And... I, I remember when I met him, we were talking, and I said, oh, you know, I, I do a joke about you in my act. And he said, yeah, I, I've heard jokes about me. And it's, he goes, and it's usually, and he does a hand move, like stabbing right. someone. And I remember, even though mine wasn't anti him by any stretch, I stopped doing the joke because I felt so horrible. And because I thought he is good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's your first lesson in in public life, I guess, oh, and, yeah. and, and 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 the effect that you know jokes and tweets and everything yeah. can have on a public person. Oh, because yeah. I think people sometimes forget. Certainly, perhaps in the case when they're tweeting at you or whatever, that there's a real person on the other oh, end yes. of it. You yeah, know? it it's like uh, see, and that's the thing. It's like well, like I say, you would never, you weren't tweeting Clark Gable. Yeah. Yeah. And but now it's like yeah, there is a person there, a real person. Yeah, and 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 it's uh, 
and and also what got me about that whole uh, Aflac tsunami thing was uh, it when people say too soon. I'm thinking, so if you're a bad person like me, you make a joke when the thing happens and it's fresh in people's minds. But when I say the joke, it is fresh in people's minds and people react in shock and horror because they're going, oh, my God, this is so terrible. This is so awful. This is such a tragic situation. If you wait, if you're a good person and you wait and you do a joke about, say, the Titanic, uh, you're then, as a good person, you're saying, hey, those people died years ago, the hell with all of them. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried is not only one of the great comedians out there, he's provocative, he's always funny, He's got one of the greatest laughs I've ever heard. Could have listened to that all day long. Maybe I'll make a loop for next week and we can just listen to Gilbert Gottfried laughing for an hour and a half. And as much fun as that's been, that's it. That's all there is for this week. Thanks so much for everyone who stopped by. Albert Brooks, Gilbert Gottfried. Most of all, though, thanks to you for being here every single week. We put a new show up every Monday. Make sure you come by. Tell your friends about it. You never know who's going to be here. And who knows, maybe it will be one of your favorite people. And you don't want to miss that.